Hello and welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast developed by the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In today's podcast on STIs, PID, and infertility, we'll be speaking with returning guest Hillary Reno, MD, PhD. Dr. Reno is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, Medical Director of the St. Louis County Sexual Health Clinic, and a Medical Consultant with the CDC's Division of STD Prevention. She's board certified in both internal medicine and infectious disease and has two decades experience in both research and clinical work. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Reno. We're so excited to speak with you again today. Thank you very much. To just give our listeners an idea of what do rates of STIs look like today and have they been affected by the pandemic? Yes, it's an excellent question. Very timely because we are recording this in April and next week, April 10th, starts STI Awareness Week. During that week, the 2020 STI Surveillance Data Report will be released by the Centers for Disease Control and that'll give us a more current look at STI rates. But what we know so far, based on some information that they pre-released, was that certain STIs including congenital syphilis. Uh, Congenital syphilis increased in 2020. We also know that for the past five to six years, STIs like gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis have increased each year, and we expect that to continue in the next surveillance report. We have seen the greatest increases in gonorrhea, syphilis, and congenital syphilis. Chlamydia seems to increase 2 to 3% every year, and that has continued. There may be some impact on the 2020 data because of the pandemic. We know during the COVID-19 pandemic with stay-at-home orders, with people seeking healthcare less often, and with people not being exposed to many upper respiratory tract infections, they weren't going to their primary doctor, and they also probably were not getting their screening healthcare visits as potentially they would have in a non-pandemic year, the STI testing as a whole decreased, especially in the March 2020 to May 2020 window, where a number of states and local areas had stay-at-home orders. So because of that, the 2020 surveillance data and rates for gonorrhea and chlamydia and potentially syphilis as well might reflect a decrease, but we know that 2020 will probably always have a little asterisk by it. Though most testing has returned to near pre-pandemic levels. It did take a little longer. And so 2021 might have an asterisk by it as well. Because we're specifically talking about those STDs that can lead to infertility and pelvic inflammatory disease. Have we seen anything around rates of PID and preventable infertility that have gone up or been affected? And also, what puts people at risk for experiencing STI-related infertility? So let's tackle that last question first. When it comes to what contributes to infertility, one of the main contributors is a history of STIs, including gonorrhea and chlamydia. And so as gonorrhea and chlamydia rates increase, the question is, do we see an increase in pelvic inflammatory disease? And so we might get into this in a little more detail, how those two are related, but let's just kind of talk about the epidemiology. We 
don't have a lot of very current data on pelvic inflammatory disease epidemiology. There was a report published in the Journal of Infectious Disease by Kressel et al. It was published in 2021, but it reflected data from 2006 to 2016. And so really it was in 2014, 2015, where our STI rates started to increase. And so this catches the last couple of years of those increases in gonorrhea and chlamydia that we've been seeing, but at the same time doesn't come forward into more current time period. But what that data showed was really very interesting. It used data from a couple of different sources. One of them was from a study, the National Survey of Family Growth, that collected information on self-reported lifetime pelvic inflammatory disease diagnoses from the participants. So the people that were surveyed were asked if they had ever had PID, and they answered yes or no. And so when you looked at the data from 2006 to, this included 2017, you saw a general decline in self-report of pelvic inflammatory disease, little by little, but there was at the end of that survey grouping from 2015 to 2017, a slight increase in the number of women reporting pelvic inflammatory disease in Black respondents. That numbers seem to level off in white respondents and continue a slight decline with the Hispanic respondents. So the thoughts were that we could have been picking up a little bit on the PID diagnosis increase related to STI increases, but that there seemed to be a disparity there. The paper itself does also review other databases that looked at things like emergency department visits and physician office visits due to PID, and those were largely down over time and had decreased. The proportion of STI clinic attendees that were diagnosed with PID also seemed to decline over those same 10 years that this paper reported on. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but with our recent increases in gonorrhea and chlamydia, and then that upswing a bit at the end that this paper reported on and PID self-reports, you know, there's certainly going to be cause for concern that there will be an increase in PID with continued increases in STIs. So we've talked a little bit about the epidemiology of PID. Let's talk a little bit more about the causes and long-term effects of PID on infertility and what some of those risk factors are for developing both PID and developing PID-related infertility. So first of all, what is PID? Well, PID, simply put, is when someone is experiencing lower abdominal pain, pelvic organ tenderness, and evidence of inflammation in the cervix. And so these symptoms can be very mild. They can be undetectable in early infections with an STI, or they can become very severe so that people even have to be hospitalized, or they may develop abscesses as well that needs more extensive care. So PID, what causes what can lead to PID? So what we understand the most about is infection with Neisseria gonorrhea or chlamydia trachomatis. So these are the two most commonly recognized pathogens that are linked to pelvic inflammatory disease. These are bacteria that infect the genital urinary tract. They especially like the cells of the endocervix and all of those epithelial cells in that area. They replicate there a little differently. Gonorrhea tends to kind of stick to the epithelial cells and then eventually get taken in to those cells, whereas chlamydia requires 
requires those epithelial cells to be inside of them to replicate. And then chlamydia will replicate in that cell and then eventually burst out and be able to be spread and transmitted to another host. But in that process of being taken inside of the cells, they suppress parts of our immune system in order to be able to do that. But at the same time, our cells send off some signals and we have compounds, inflammatory compounds that surge. And it's those inflammatory molecules that lead to inflammation and swelling and cellular damage in the reproductive tract. So this is why people get cervical discharge or inflammation of the endometrium or the fallopian tubes. And therefore, it is that fallopian tube inflammation that is usually described as the most direct reason for infertility in people that have had gonorrhea and chlamydia when the infection has reached that part of the reproductive tract. And what we also know about this is that with each subsequent infection, that inflammation and damage can be exponentially compounded and made worse. So having a history of multiple infections with either of those STIs would increase the chance of there being fallopian tube blockage that would lead to infertility. Are there other organisms involved in this? Certainly there are. And there's lots of papers that talk about the relationship of pelvic inflammatory disease to other organisms and other STIs. But we're probably best served today to talk just about the reported STIs and their link to infertility, because that's where we have the most knowledge. How often does a single case of PID lead to infertility? You mentioned that repeat cases of both STIs and PID can lead to infertility, but what's the risk of just that one case? And are there other factors that can contribute to PID leading to infertility? You mentioned that a person having a cervix is one of those factors. Are there other factors? When it comes to like one infection with gonorrhea or chlamydia leading to PID, the general feeling is about 10 to 15% of people with a cervix who have an endocervical infection with gonorrhea, chlamydia could go on to develop PID. But the, and, and we generally think that gonorrhea would lead to a more severe case and chlamydia a milder case. But we know there's so much undiagnosed and asymptomatic gonorrhea and chlamydia that people can present and have PID or present with infertility, especially from fallopian tube scarring that would never have been diagnosed with gonorrhea or chlamydia in their history. And that is why of course, screening is recommended for people with a cervix under the age of 25, especially, right, is to treat these infections before they lead to the scarring or compounded with further infection. So we definitely talked about repeat infection causing compounded issues, but there do seem to be racial disparities. Obviously, we see racial disparities in rates of gonorrhea and chlamydia, and also in PID reports. This is not due to a biologic reason, but this is due to the systematic and systemic racism that we see in medical care. And also what we see in access to health care as far as having access to health insurance, being able to get your routine exams, and then also getting good sex positive and affirming and culturally aware sexual health care. All of those things impact how many times people will come back to get screened or if they have symptoms they're going to wait a week or two or if they're going to come into the office, right? And so that's what contributes to these disparities that we see. 
what are some common signs and symptoms of PID specifically versus, say, just chlamydia or gonorrhea infection that a clinician should be aware of and look out for? Right. So what I usually see is that patients have come into clinic with some vaginal discharge that may have been around for a couple days or a couple weeks, but it's when they start talking about pain when they're having sex or lower abdominal pain and not not just pain with urination. That would actually lead me down to more of like a cystitis or a bladder infection. But when they're talking about just having pain in the lower abdomen, that tends to be constant. It could be colicky, meaning kind of coming and going. And then of course, fever is a, usually thought to be a hallmark of PI when it's placed in conjunction with vaginal discharge and abdominal pain. This abdominal pain could be perceived as maybe even some back pain. So my level of suspicion there is usually still focused on PID. Of course, I'm also focused on pyelonephritis or kidney infection, but those are the things that are really would lead me down the path in an outpatient clinic at examining patients and with the consideration they could have PID. Usually patients with PID who present to an emergency room will just have those symptoms but a more severe degree. And if they are vomiting, which we can see whether they've started antibiotics or not, they might need hospitalization for some IV antibiotics until that becomes a little more manageable. How does treating PID differ from treating other genital infections in the outpatient setting? And what can help a provider decide if, for instance, they see a patient in their outpatient setting, they're wondering if they need to be referred to a hospital or more specialist or intensive care? 2021. CDC STI treatment guidelines do have some updated management for pelvic inflammatory disease. So the reason that treatments have been updated is because there was a study that was published that looked at the addition of metronidazole compared to management of PID without metronidazole and found that especially at that 30-day follow-up mark that patients had reduced discomfort if they were treated with metronidazole at the beginning. So right now, the record recommended regimen for outpatient management of pelvic inflammatory disease is ceftriaxone 500 milligrams IM times one plus doxycycline 100 milligrams orally twice a day for usually we say 10 days plus metronidazole 500 milligrams orally three times a day for 10 days. So this outpatient regimen is the recommendation that changed a little bit because now we say that always there should be this outpatient management with metronidazole. So the let me correct that to 14 days of treatment and not just 10. The other scenario is of course if someone presents and they are sicker At that point, ceftriaxone, one gram IV every day should be given in addition to the metronidazole and doxycycline courses. But now you could give them IV if needed. The key is how do you determine if someone can be managed as an outpatient or needs to be sent for further evaluation and potentially be managed as an inpatient? So when I'm seeing patients in clinic, they generally do not have fever. They have some discomfort with what we call cervical motion tenderness, so with cervical manipulation with a bimanual exam, or they may be slightly discomforted on either side of their adenexa, so around their fallopian tubes or their ovaries. But 
the pain would not be so severe that they would be truly in a lot of discomfort. And it's hard for me to explain because this is sort of a scenario where you're seeing the patient and deciding how much discomfort they're in, but weighing that at the same time with how they just look in general. The other thing that's really important to note is that if I'm seeing someone in clinic who I'm going to treat as an outpatient for pelvic inflammatory disease, there's a series of instructions that I give them. I note that if they develop a fever in a day or so, and they're taking their antibiotics, or if they're not able to tolerate their antibiotics, can't keep the pills down, or if their pain becomes much worse, then they should go seek additional care. And I talk to them about these things, and I explain that these antibiotics we're giving them will probably work and cure their infection, but we still have to be concerned about some of these complications, including abscess, specifically tubo-ovarian abscesses, or other complications from pelvic inflammatory disease, and that they do need treatment. Like throwing up the pills, that's not going to be helping you any, right? You need to get those antibiotics in your system. And so they're giving very specific instructions. In my experience, about 15 years at our sexual health clinic, I have referred one or two women during that time with pelvic inflammatory disease to go to an emergency room or urgent care for further evaluation. Generally, those patients are sick. (laughs) They know they're sick and they're going to seek emergency care. What are some good ways clinicians can talk about STIs, the risk of PID and infertility with their patients when they're screening them or seeing them for a confirmed case without almost casting aspersions on them Mm -hmm. in regards to a patient's desire for children or pregnancy? Yeah, I think it's very important that first of all, we note how common STIs are, that we talk about the fact that in some urban areas, one in four people with a cervix could have an STI. It sometimes can reach as high a prevalence as one in two. That, in my mind, lets people know they're not alone, that they're not just kind of standing out there. No one else has this infection. No, I promise you many people have these infections. I think it's also important that we talk about how treatable and easily treatable they are and that chlamydia and gonorrhea are successfully cured with our antibiotics that we have now and our antibiotics are plentiful and available and easy to administer. I think it's also important that we however, mention that STIs can be asymptomatic in 70-80% of cases. And if it's really hard to seek care if you don't know that you have an infection. But that's why it's very important for our patients with a cervix to keep up with their regular medical care and get their annual screenings. And so I also like to empower patients to bring this up with their partners because, you know, knowing that STIs can lead to infertility can empower them to be very concerned about their health care and want to talk to their partners about it. I think that's a great thing that, you know, you could sit down with your partner and say, look, you know, I want to have kids in the future, not now, but maybe in the future. And I would very much like us to have testing for STIs, whether or not they've had sex already, getting testing makes sense. And so I think that's a really good point for people to bring up. And then finally, what I would say is that because these are all manageable and treatable, that I would encourage people to seek out testing and care because, you know, this is a quick fix. It's This isn't something where you need to take these horrible medicines for months on end and there's only a small chance of cure, right? These are very effective medicines and generally easily tolerable. Other thing that I think we don't do enough of is retesting people with an STI in three months. 
This is talked about in the guidelines quite a bit. And one of the papers on our set in like our STI clinical network looked at how often people with an STI, specifically gonorrhea or chlamydia, were retested. What we recommend is three months later. So they looked at people with the cervix from 15 to 24 years old, how often they were rescreened for chlamydia two to four months after that chlamydia diagnosis in 14 of our STI surveillance network sites. And what they found over time from 2010 to 2018 is it didn't really change very much. And it almost always each year after year was less than 20% of these people with the cervix who had chlamydia. And so I think that is a super important way of patients taking charge of their healthcare, but also a super powerful way that we can reduce rates of reinfection because we know patients who have gonorrhea or chlamydia are at increased likelihood of having another episode in the next 12 months. And I think it's really underutilized. And I think part of that is because of messaging. And I think part of that is because we're not doing a great job to let people know how to get testing. What are some good resources for our clinicians out there looking to learn more about preventing PID and infertility as it relates to STI? The Centers for Disease Control Division of STD Prevention has the treatment guidelines online. And so you're able to access those through the website, cdc.gov forward slash STD. And they have specific sections on pelvic inflammatory disease, also tables that you can look at for screening recommendations. There are are other resources available through ACOG as well. And there are some nice review articles that you can find uh, online just by searching pelvic inflammatory disease, whether you want to, you know, whatever resource you want to look for those just to get kind of the basic information. You can also go to the National STI Curriculum, which is based out of the University of Washington, and they have online modules that are available for free CME and CNE and probably other acronyms I don't remember for continuing education. And those are really beautiful modules. I say beautiful because they have lovely visual graphics. You can learn about chlamydia, for example, and see how it transforms from its different forms to get into a cell to then replicate and disperse as an elemental body. So you can look at those pictures. They have sections on epidemiology and sections on diagnosis and management uh, for all the STIs and then you can have a section and read more about PID there as well. And I think that would be kind of the highlights. Of course, the USPSTF had their screening recommendations for gonorrhea and chlamydia, which are very important to understand and make sure that we're meeting those recommendations in screening our young people, especially for STIs. So I think it's also important to review those. Well, this has been a fantastic and informative conversation, but of course, all good things must end. But before we go, what would you say are your top takeaway for our clinician listeners as they return to their practice? So I think the top takeaways is something that's very important and you mentioned as well, is that we find a way to talk about sex and sexual health care in a way that's non-stigmatizing, does not cause people to be afraid, but that we are giving them information that empower them to take care of their health care and really put themselves first when it comes to health care and 
enable them to talk to their partners in their relationships. And then lastly, besides following our usual screening recommendations, I really do think that we are underutilizing this recommendation to retest anyone with an STI three months later. Obviously, the data shows that we're underutilizing it. That seems to be my experience in clinical practice. And so I would encourage everyone to let their patients know and encourage them to come back in three months to get retested. They could even potentially do it as a walk-in visit if that's possible in your clinic and make it really easy for them so that they're willing to do it. Well, thank you so much for joining us again today, Dr. Reno, and for sharing your time and expertise with our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you so much. For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for The Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For transcripts of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers established and funded by the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees and service sites. This podcast is supported by DHHS grant number one, FPTPA 00-6031-01-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement of DHHS, OASH, and or OPA for opinions or products described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Study. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files. Thank you.